This is Live Wired in Calgary. Welcome once again to Live Wired in Calgary. I'm your host, Darren Krauss. I am editor at LiveWireCalgary.com. This monthly program is done in partnership with CJSW 90.9 FM and is produced in studio at the University of Calgary on traditional Treaty 7 lands. I've got another super show lined up this month. I'm quite excited about what we have in store. I want to share with you a story that I sort of stumbled across in my travels over the past few weeks. It's a really it's a really great community story, kind of, you know, one of those stories that Probably wouldn't see the light of day anywhere else, uh, but I thought it was really cool because I just kind of stumbled across it, like I said, and uh, and you don't see too many of these stories out there uh, that often. Of course, we're also going to take a quick look back at the results from the federal election, including hearing from Jason Kenney, our premier here in Alberta, and his remarks in the Alberta legislature. As part of this, uh, I also wanted to share with you some unique insight on how things played out in Ontario. Uh, I have friends out there, and and they provided me with some really interesting feedback on why perhaps uh, Andrew Scheer and the Conservative Party weren't able to make a breakthrough out there. We will also check in on the city's potential change to residential speed limits and some of the debate in committee that's happening, um, and it's actually happening while we're producing this piece. So we've got all that, and we've got On Your Radar for November, so stick around. Check out Livewire Calgary on social media, on Twitter at Livewire Calgary, on Instagram at Livewire underscore Calgary, and like us on Facebook. One of the things I love about what I'm doing right now with Livewire Calgary is the flexibility that I have. Our nimble-mindedness is aided, of course, by the fact we don't have specific deadlines. So we're able to walk indoors, literally in this case, to uncover some neat things that are being done in this city. But let me set this one up for you. I had a quick photo shoot set up with Reverend Anna Greenwood-Lee for the story on the launch of the Calgary Alliance for the Common Good, which is a good story in itself. You can check it out online. We met up at St. Peter's Anglican Church in the southwest community of Kelvin Grove. It's right across the street from Henry Wisewood High School. That's a school that has nearly 1,200 kids. I noticed a modest sign for the Ohana Community Cafe It had been hammered into the ground at the front of the church, and it was pointing to a nondescript door on the side of the building. I had mentioned it to Reverend Greenwood Lee, and she said I should go inside and take a look. Well, as I left, at first, I'll be honest, I looked at my phone to check the time, and I got to the crosswalk that was leading back to my car, and then I stopped. I looked back over my shoulder And something told me that I needed to go and check this out. And I'm glad I did. All right, it started eight years ago. Started eight years ago, our youth leader at the time wanted to establish a program where kids that found that they didn't really fit in at the high school had somewhere safe to go Mm -hmm. at lunchtime and after school. Right. So at the beginning, the program happened both lunchtime and after school. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had about 15 kids that were coming regularly. They did some the occasional cooking lessons, um, but it was primarily 
trying to provide a safe place for kids that felt like they really didn't fit in and were feeling bullied or mm-hmm. kind of intimidated by the crowd and the you know the bustle of a really big high school. Right. Uh, from there, after after he left and was no longer here leading the program, uh, the program kind of started transitioning a little bit. And it's was we're still focused on being a safe place for the kids to come over, but uh, we became more focused on families in need that right. were um, struggling financially, trying to provide nutritious meals that were really mm-hmm. inexpensive. Uh, we also do um, hampers for some of the some of the families that we become aware of. We'll put together like uh, little grocery bags and stuff for them to take home. Um, we have a number of people from the community that don't have anything to do with the high school. Uh, there's several street people that come in and see us regularly and pick up um, grocery bags or come really? to lunch. And so anyone's welcome. Our actual lunch time is controlled by the, the bell schedule at the school. Oh, yeah, of course. Because that's like 98% of our people. Right. And so um, we serve lunch Monday to Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't serve on Fridays because the school has no lunch hour on Friday. Um, so oh, yeah, Fridays okay, I, I do right. other prep and mm-hmm. grocery shopping and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's really grown. I took over three years ago. At that point, we were averaging 15 to 20 kids a day. Mm-hmm. Now we average 120 kids a day. Really? In 25 minutes flat. Because wow. they only have a 34-minute lunch hour. Right. So you got to try and get through 120, serving 120 kids in about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so we've had to really streamline how we, we serve at the window to try and be fast enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the kids take their lunch to go now because there's just so little time. Right. Uh, last June, this past June, just a few months ago, their high school cafeteria closed down. Um, it was a contract that was subcontracted out and the company that was doing it uh, pulled out and they haven't been able to find another company to take it over. So uh, starting here in September this year, there is no no food service of any kind available right at the school anymore. And we were a little bit wondering how that was going to be because <laughs> in the spring we were averaging about like 100, 105 and, we, and the school was like, well, the cafeteria has been serving 200 a day, so you'll probably get 300. And I was like... I can't fit 300 people here. <laughs> and uh, You're going to have to stagger them in here right. in shifts. <laughs> but, and, uh, but we've, yeah, we, I think like our biggest day was we hit days that it's 150. Mm-hmm. And there's only a room for 100 to sit down, but a lot of kids take it to go. So, right. A couple times a year, we do big free hot dog days outside in, in, uh, in the parking lot. And on those days, we have 500 kids mm-hmm. in 20 minutes. It's right. Really, it, it makes regular lunchtime seem so easy. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, oftentimes, you know, this kind of space doesn't get used regularly mm-hmm. in, in these kind of buildings. Especially during the week and the daytime. Right. So, I mean, is this a good opportunity? Plus, you got a captive audience right there that, that is in need, a lot of them. Um, mm-hmm. Do you find it fills a real void in the community? I feel as though it does. Um, it's very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, we have several programs within. So mm-hmm. uh, normal lunch is $2.50. Or they can get what we call a semester card, which costs $100. And they can come for lunch every day for the whole semester, which works out to $1.32 a oh, day wow. for a hot lunch. That's and I, I have four kids. Yeah. And I know I don't pack bag lunches for $1.32. <laughs> no kidding. And, uh, but the exciting part about that is then within that program... 
we have a relationship with the counselor's office at the school and when they become aware of a family that's struggling they just give us that name and we put that student on our semester card list and none of the kids know that they're sponsored and we go out and through the community and through the church find someone to to buy their semester card on their behalf and so um, my semester card list right now runs about 60 kids that are on that list and about 25% of them, about 15 of them, are sponsored kids that we're able to let people from our church and from the community sponsor. We've even been contacted by grandparents of kids that have nothing to do with St. Peter's Church, but they've got grandkids at the school that, that come here every day for lunch, and they phone us up and ask, well, how can we get involved? And they're sponsoring other students that they don't know. The sponsors never know who they got paired with. Right. Um, but uh, so that's really exciting because there's kids that, you know, sometimes you'll see them, they'll linger back. Their friends are getting lunch and you're, you're, you're noticing, you've seen the same face three or four times, but they haven't never come up for lunch. And then we can go out and just give them lunch. And uh, some of those kids, it's really exciting. They're like, really? You're going to give me lunch <laughs> for nothing? And we're like, yeah, that's why we're here. And uh, so that's really fun and exciting and getting the opportunity to, to do that. And... A big part of our mandate is that there's no expectation of anything in return. We want to be a safe place where the kids can come for lunch and they don't get hijacked by any other agenda. And so there's no church-related stuff that's allowed in this room mm -hmm. when my kids are here for, for service, for mm -hmm. lunch service. Um, because we want to be able to be serving the community without the community going, oh, but they want something back. Right. That was my interview with Cameron Graham. He's the coordinator of the Ohana Community Cafe. A really neat story that I don't think had I actually stumbled across that sign meeting there with Reverend Greenwood Lee that I would have ever known that story. And being able to share that with Calgarians uh, was really important to me. And that, that's part of the mandate that we have at Livewire Calgary. So I thought it was a great opportunity for me to share that with you here as well. We've talked on this program before about changes to Calgary's residential speed limit. And at a city committee happening today, uh, that's the day that we're recording, uh, they're examining three potential scenarios for residential speed limit changes around Calgary. I'm going to break these down really quickly here for you. If you want more information, of course, you can find the documents uh, at the City of Calgary. But let me give you the, the Coles Notes versions here. Scenario one is that uh, residential streets and collector roads both have a uniform speed limit of 30 kilometers an hour. The city kind of outlined some of the key considerations to be made for there as, I mean, it's going to be obviously be the largest change from what the current speed limit is today, which is uh, 50 kilometers an hour. It's also expected to have the largest uh, expected reduction in collisions, injuries, and fatalities. It will have the largest impact to travel times, which is a bone of contention for many people who are against the changes to the speed limit. Uh, of course, there's going to be a higher cost to implement. You need to change all of the signs all across the city. Uh, there will be... 
uh, a consistent speed limit now across residential neighborhoods. Uh, it allows for design standards. I've written on this topic before how you can't actually change the design of roads by uh, provincial guidelines until you actually change the residential speed limit to 30 kilometers an hour. Now, I don't know about you, and this is a, maybe a little bit of a tangent, but when there is a narrower, narrower road with cars parked on both sides, I naturally start to slow down. And that's the principle behind the design aspect of changing the roads to 30 kilometers an hour. If you can change the design of the roads, then you will probably begin to change the behaviors. Uh, the City of Calgary has often talked about uh, both the posted speed and the effective speed. Um, insofar as if you design a road for 50 kilometers an hour, it doesn't really matter if the posted speed is 30 or 40 kilometers an hour. The brain tells the body, the driver in this case, that it's okay to drive 40 or 50 kilometers an hour because they determine that to be safe. So with the 30 kilometer an hour uniform speed limit, uh, they uh, believe that uh, the reduction in collisions would be somewhere around 10 to 20 percent on residential roads and 16 to 30 percent on collector roads. Uh, overall, they expect the value in the uh, reduction of collisions to be somewhere in between 60 and $70 million a year. So moving on to scenario two, which would be a residential streets at 30 kilometers an hour and collector roads at 50 kilometers an hour. Just to give you a little bit of context, a collector road, those are those roads in areas uh, that the residential streets lead to. So uh, think, um, you know, just off the top of my head, I'm trying to think of a collector road here. Uh, you know, think of those big loops that go around one of your community and each little side street branches off to those. And those eventually lead to the more arterial routes. Well, the proposal here is for it to be 30 kilometers an hour on the residential roads and 50 kilometers an hour. Obviously, that's going to be the smallest change from where we're at today. But there is a moderate expectation in a reduction of collisions, injuries, and fatalities. It has the least impact to travel times, and of course, it's the lowest cost to implement. It will require some traffic coming around the city, and of course, there will be differing speeds in residential neighborhoods, which could be cause for concern because if you're driving 50, what's to stop you from driving 50 once you reach the residential roads? For me personally, uh, this kind of a change, uh, you know, it requires a lot of additional enforcement because who's going to be patrolling all of the 30 kilometer an hour to 50 kilometer an hour changes from the collector routes to the 30 kilometer an hour areas? I think it's a little bit onerous and uh, frankly, I'm not sure it'll have the desired effect. Now, I actually lean more towards scenario three, which is a blanket 40 kilometer an hour speed limit. Why do I lean a little bit more this way? Well, there is, I mean, there is a, a reduction in speed and therefore there will be a reduction in the number of collisions and the number of pedestrian conflicts. It is the middle road. There will be a moderate impact to travel times. There will be a moderate cost to implement. And I mean, it, it will 
be consistent across the neighborhood so you can actually have uh, a greater ease in enforcement of a blanket 40 kilometer an hour rule. So the expected value in the reduction of collisions is between 32 and 38.5 million per year, according to the city information. Uh, So I'm going to take you now to a little bit of the debate here, and, and we're kind of doing this in real time. And I'm going to mix the the commentary uh, from council with my own commentary, only because this is an issue that um, that I take fairly seriously. I'm not a I'm not a regular walker. I probably do drive more than I actually walk. But why this is important to me, actually, is because of my kids. I want to encourage my kids to walk to school, to to be comfortable, to be safe when they're crossing certain intersections. And I've seen firsthand the inattentiveness of both pedestrians and drivers in these situations. So I, I kind of have a keen interest, and I do think that there's a combination of all of these things that we need to take into consideration. But in looking at some of the conversation... Uh, I mean, the city of Calgary has seen about 250 collisions so far this year. Uh, as we, I, I should note, as we're, you know, the program is playing right now, I am actually probably meeting with the city of Calgary's roads department at some of their higher pedestrian collision areas. We're going to be taking a look at the design aspects of some of these areas and what maybe some of the, the cause behind the pedestrian collisions. I do have actually the pedestrian collisions mapped out. That's probably a little bit of a heads up to others out there. But uh, so we are going to be rolling out a story that's going to go a little bit more in depth in what's happening in these situations. But some of the conversation that's happening right now uh, actually revolves around not the lives that are going to be saved, but the cost to implement the 40 kilometer an hour, 30 kilometer an hour speed limit. And I guess the, the response that I would have to that is, um, what is one, one life worth? Is one life worth more than another? Is a pedestrian life worse, w- worth less than that of a driver's? I, I mean, these are, these are pretty simple questions for me to ask. And, and going back to the reason why th- this is an important issue to me is the life of, of my child when he's crossing the street is far more important. And I say this almost every time. It is far more important than you being able to get to work or to school or to whatever event um, as a driver that you need to get to 15 or 20 seconds faster. It, it really is. That's what this boils down to for me. However, we've got counselors asking the question in council today about, you know, the, the amount that it costs to put these signs up. The amount that it costs to make the switchover, the amount that it costs to to do the enforcement, and I guess one would argue that you know maybe there's not enough enforcement of the speed zones that are already there. There's a comment by Councillor Sean Chu that says, "If our goal is Vision Zero, no one getting hurt, the speed limit should be zero. He says that's impossible. He said that he believes that this is 100% virtue signaling and totally impractical. Well. 
I mean, come on. It's not. It's not virtue signaling to want to save lives. It is not virtue signaling to want to make sure that we have a safer pedestrian realm. This is this is something that, for whatever reason, those on the side of of conservatism don't seem to see the long-term economic benefit of making simple decisions like this. Yeah, it costs a little bit of money up front, but the long-term gain is substantial. And that's where the the ends really does justify the means. And this is a disconnect that that people like Councillor Sean Chu just don't understand. Now, apparently, because I am doing this a little bit real-time, there was an amendment that did pass um, as council was in there, that uh, part of the report that's expected to come back in March 2020 on this uh, does actually allow for us to maintain the status quo with speed limits in residential areas. So I'm going to get off my soapbox here on this one, uh, and we're going to move on to the next segment. But it's something that you definitely need to, to keep a watch on because it's going to continue to be a topic well into the next year. Check out Livewire Calgary on social media, on Twitter at Livewire Calgary, on Instagram at Livewire underscore Calgary, and like us on Facebook. All right, let's take a quick blast through on your radar for the month of November. The World of Whiskey Festival goes November 2nd from 6 to 9 p.m. at the BMO Center. The Fast and Female Summit goes ahead November 3rd at the Mark and McPhail Center from 10 to 4. Femwave comes into town November 8th and 9th. That's a mix of music and visual arts coming to the Royal Canadian Legion Number 1. That's a good segue into upcoming Remembrance Day events. Of course, those take place across the city on November 11th at 11 a.m. If you need something for the kids, Disney on Ice is in town November 17th at 3 p.m. But the big ticket item next month is, of course, the Grey Cup. It comes to Calgary. Now, the actual game is November 24th, but there's a whole Grey Cup week that leads up to the big game. Let's just hope the hometown team gets to make another appearance here at home. Alberta was mostly conservative blue. There was one seat in Edmonton that did go NDP. Saskatchewan was predominantly conservative and large swaths of BC and Manitoba went conservative. Now, you probably followed along with much of the conversation about the popular vote split and how the conservatives captured that by more than 200,000 votes. In the end, however, the Liberal Party of Canada captured the most seats and will form a minority government. It stirred up anger in Alberta. A handful of separatist positions have popped up and are gaining traction. I certainly don't support separation, but I do feel the frustration. I understand it. But what happened in Ontario? Why couldn't the Conservatives make a bigger breakthrough despite a scandal-ridden Liberal government and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau? I'll get to that with some insight I have into what voters out there were thinking. But first, let's listen to a clip from Jason Kenney's speech in the legislature the day after the October 21st federal election. Mr. Speaker, I rise to continue debate on this motion with particular reference uh, to the profound implications of yesterday's federal general election. Earlier today, I spoke with the Prime Minister and congratulated on on his government's re-election. Albertans are Democrats, and I have always said uh, that we will work with any federal government to advance the interests of this great province. 
I was also clear with the Prime Minister that yesterday we saw the largest democratic mandate in the history of Alberta for a federal party with nearly 70% of Albertans voting for the Conservative Party of Canada. This same party that won a plurality of votes across the country in yesterday's election. I told the Prime Minister that behind those numbers lies a profound sense of alienation that must be taken very seriously. Mr. Speaker, many Albertans feel betrayed. We have been proud Canadians throughout our history, always willing to defend our country and its values. For decades, we have been the great engine of jobs and prosperity for the entire country, contributing over $600 billion more to the rest of Canada than we have received back from Ottawa over the past six decades. Even in tough times, with, Albert with Albertans losing their jobs in recent years, with many losing their homes and many having lost their hope, we have still contributed $20 billion a year more to Ottawa than we, were, than we have received back. That wealth, generated by the blessings of our natural resources and the innovation and hard work of Albertans, has helped to build schools and hospitals from coast to coast. We have been an economic refuge for Canadians struggling with poverty and unemployment, for, who for decades have moved to this land of opportunity to enjoy the dignity of work. We have been the great engine of middle-class job growth, of upward social mobility, of social progress. It is here that Indigenous Canadians have experienced by far the highest levels of employment and incomes across Canada. The pensions and savings of Canadians from coast to coast have depended in large part on the resources that we develop here responsibly. And yet, despite all of that, Albertans feel like everywhere we turn we are being blocked in, pinned down and even attacked within our own country for what we do to contribute to it. We are tired. We are tired of politicians demanding that Albertans pay the bills while at the same time undermining our ability to generate the wealth that we share across the country. It was this federal government, Mr. Speaker, that killed the Northern Gateway and Energy East pipelines, that surrendered to a veto on the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, and that has brought in the No More Pipelines law and the tanker ban that attacks a product produced in only one of Canada's 10 provinces, Alberta. In this campaign, Mr. Trudeau openly campaigned in Quebec against what he called les grands pétroliers albertains, the big Alberta oil companies. Mr. Speaker, can you imagine a prime minister or a leader of any Canadian political party openly attacking Ontario's, Ottawa, uh, auto, excuse me, Ontario's auto sector or Quebec's aviation industry, the idea itself is unthinkable and rightfully so. In fact, to the contrary, the federal government is eager to subsidize both industries that produce major CO2 emissions. So there you have it, Premier Jason Kenney, the day after the federal election uh, in the Alberta legislature. 
So in talking with friends that I have in Ontario, specifically those in the so-called 905 area code, which tends to lean a little bit more conservative, there were a couple of factors that may have worked against Andrew Scheer and the Conservative Party. Sure, there's the question of his stance on LGBTQ issues or women's reproductive rights. It leads people to think that perhaps there's a more religious right agenda behind Andrew Scheer. There's also the question of Doug Ford's conservative debacle and the late-breaking connection he had to political operative and columnist Warren Kinsella. It happens, though, that there's a far more human aspect that may have stood in Shear's way. I was told that Andrew Shear's likability was a major factor. The way he related to Ontarians didn't resonate with average voters. It was a message that hundreds of thousands of Westerners wanted to hear, but not those in seat-rich Ontario. Quote, he didn't speak Ontario, is what they said, just as Eastern politicians struggle to connect with the West. My Eastern friends agreed that voters turned a blind eye to much of what went on with Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party during their last tenure. They also said, though, that it's more than a policy problem. It's an image problem. Quote, most people I talked to here said they didn't vote for anyone. They voted against someone. I think that says it all. That could sum up how election night played out overall, and it's left Albertans smarting. Now we have a minority government, and it will be interesting to see where in Alberta, unrepresented by any Liberal members, will now fit in. That's it for another show. Lots of good stuff there this month. I hope you thought so too. I'd like to thank Cameron Graham from the Ohana Community Cafe for chatting with me to tell me their story. Of course, we're going to have to keep our eye on both how the residential speed limit and the federal political landscape play out over the coming months. Perhaps we'll capture some of that next month. In the meantime... Happy Halloween. Stay safe out there, all you little ghouls and goblins. Also, don't forget to set your clocks back November 3rd. That's always uh, an issue for some people. And we'll talk to you at the end of November. Have a fantastic month. (laughs) 